The Lord be with you. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings. And with thy most gracious favor, further us with thy continual help, that in all our works, begun, continued, and ended in thee, we may glorify thy holy name and finally, by thy mercy, obtain everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Welcome again to this brand new church school year. Uh, This parable that we had read and and on which the skit uh, was based is one of my favorite parables for a lot of reasons, but primarily because it it points to the one of the great foundations of the church, uh, one of the found indeed one of the foundations of grace and and thereby one of the foundations of Christianity. If we miss what is being taught in that parable, we'll never really understand uh, the uh, the uh, amazing grace. If you were around the Advent 1996, I think it was, Paul Zoll invited me to be one of your Lenten preachers. And, of course, I know you all remember it, but the best... <laughs> the best the sermon that I, that I preached uh, was entitled, You Are What You Wear. Uh, and I borrowed that title from a book that was written many years ago. Now, I mentioned this book to you, but it's been a while, and I'll tell you about it again. It's long out of print. You won't be able to find it, but it's entitled, You Are you, What You Wear. And it was written by, some of you remember, the legendary athlete Jim Thorpe, uh, an Indian who was Olympian. Uh, he had a son named William Thorby. And William Thorby was an actor and uh, a movie star. Well, he, was a mo- he played in movies. He never was a star. Although he did star in Marlboro cigarette ads when he wore a Shirling, a leather Shirley suede jacket and he would ride his horse and had Marlboro cigarettes. Well, he's, the fact that he sold more suede jackets than, than th- that, that, was, that was what turned on the world of the suede jacket was this ad when William Thorby uh, rode a horse for the, in the Marlboro and he had his hat on, uh, if, if you might remember that. Uh, but William Thorby recognized that uh, when he was an actor, a small and a small part uh, actor, uh, he recognized that a lot of people were, were uh, trying to change their lives uh, and uh, almost desperately this desire to change their lives and was spending an enorm, enorm, inordinate amount of time and money buying motivational books and 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 uh, cons- having consultants uh, to help them uh, change their lives, and he also recognized that there's one very small thing that you could do to to uh, change your life, and that was by pack- packaging yourself. That is by by dressing uh, for a certain for whatever role that you wanted uh, to to play. Uh, whatever role you wanted to see yourself in, uh, in in real life. So he could change yourself by packing yourself by achieving specific goals. Now, his theory was based on his 25 years of of being a professional actor and a model, and he had always noticed that uh, small-time actors could arrive at the studio and they would look as if they had come from the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak, these small-time actors, and the wardrobe department would get them and dress them in a, in a way that would portray an image that was uh, exactly the opposite 
uh, the, the wardrobe department, if, if they wanted to portray someone who was a tough guy, they could dress him to play that role. And he would, you know, whatever he was in real life, didn't matter. They, could dr- they found out that the way they were dressed were as important or more important than even the, the, the lines that they spoke. If you wanted to be, uh, have a big heart, they could dress you to have a big heart. You'd be a humble man, authoritative man, whatever. They were the first Hollywood, you know, you put white hats on the good guys, you put black hats uh, on the bad guys. It's called image control. Uh, you name the image you desire, and they could, they could package you for that. But he also realized that what really smart actors were doing uh, was uh, packaging themselves in their private lives based on the positive reinforcements that they received uh, on, in, in their stage roles. So, in effect, they were becoming what they wore. I hope you're, you're with me on that. And I, I think that we have probably, all of us experienced this from time to time. If you've ever felt kind of uh, down in the dumps, if you felt in the blue, if you felt very ordinary, felt, felt very plain Jane kind of feeling, and then you'd be tra- you can be transformed by putting on uh, a Hickey Freeman top. Have you ever felt that way? Have you, have you ever felt kind of dumps and look in the mirror and say, you know what, I look good. Uh, and, then your, and then it happens, your, your countenance changes, your confidence changes. If you look good and you know you look good and you've packaged yourself in a way that you, this is the image that you have, this is the image I want, then I guarantee you your confidence will be up and you will greet people uh, more, more merrily and you'll, be, you'll just kind of be in a better mood. Uh, I have in my my home, up on my wall, my favorite series of photographs taken of my son when he was about five years old. It's actually three photographs in a trifold frame. And in, in, in the first frame, uh, he has on his grandfather's felt hat, has on my glasses, he has uh, a tie on, he's got a briefcase in his hand, and he's got his Sunday coat on. And he says, Mom, take this. And we didn't, you know, she didn't know what he wanted. He said, just take this one. He took it. And then in the second frame, he came back. Uh, and you can see that he's cast the glasses aside. The, the, the briefcase has been cast aside. The hat's been taken off. And he's beginning to unbutton his shirt. And if you look at the shirt, you, the, 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 the undergarment is a royal, bright royal blue undergarment. And you see with bold red lettering. You can't quite make it out yet, but he's, dre- he's undressing himself. And then in the third frame, there he stands in the full array of Superman. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's, it's so cute. And, of course, he's got a hole in the knee, but that, that's all right. The way he had worn it so much. Uh, and I don't know where he bought that little outfit or where Jane bought it, but, but there he is. But he's just beaming with, with victory. You can see it in his countenance. Victory and, 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 and confidence and, and might. So, in effect, uh, he had become uh, what, he, what he wore. The background of this parable that we read this morning and that we saw enacted in the play uh, really goes all the way back to the prophet Isaiah, uh, who described this invitation. <clears throat> it's the first that we see it early in. Early on in Isaiah, there's this imitation that God is going to have this feast. And he said, and I quote from Isaiah, uh, The Lord of hosts will make a feast of fat things, of feast of wine on the leaves, of fat things full of marrow. And, and he goes on to describe this wonderful feast that will be, eschatological feast that will be at the end. And it's, uh, it's of the most, if you read on, you see it's the most finest 
feast that you could ever imagine would make Babbitt's feast look look like a potluck dinner. Uh, and speaking of potluck, this this feast uh, you don't bring. There's something about human nature. We feel like we all ought to bring a little something, you know, to the to the potluck dinner. But no, this is not a potluck thing. You know, God has provided absolutely everything. But He said, if you notice, it says a feast for all peoples, and that's where kind of this parable begins to come in. It's not just for those who were invited who really weren't worthy and they were too righteous. To, to accept anyway, but it's for all the people. Go out and find all the people, not just the so-called righteous ones, but the riffraff, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, and those who are struggling, those who are broken, the sinful, the mournful. All of them I want to come to this feast. And so it, it's, 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 this, it's this picture in the Old Testament that, uh, that is, uh, I think, brilliant. Jesus referred to this parable is, is, is referencing this eschatological banquet in this parable. So let me just read it one more time. I know we heard it read, but just quickly. Jesus spoke to them in a parable, said, The kingdom of heaven, this is the kingdom of heaven. You know, don't forget that. May be compared. So this is like, this is the way heaven, this is the way it works in heaven. Uh, uh, a king gives a marriage feast for his son, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the feast, but they wouldn't come. And again, he sent other servants, saying, Those who are invited, behold, I have made my dinner, uh, and everything is ready to come. But the people made light of it, and they went off, one to his farm, one to his, to his business, while the rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. He's referring there a little bit to the Old Testament prophets that were rejected, uh, and uh, some of them uh, uh, were killed. Uh, and the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but... Those who are invited are not worthy. Go, therefore, go into the thoroughfares and invite to the marriage feast as many as you can find. And they went into the streets and they gathered all those who could find. That's where Craig and and, uh, and the jogger and, and you know and they had Andrew there raking. All of these all of these people were invited, uh, and and he gave them these, these these garments. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had on a wedding garment. He said, "Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment?" And he was speechless. You know, there is no excuse, in other words. Now, we added, we added a line. You know, Joe did have a response. He said, don't you like my goat, so forth. But in, in the parable, he was speechless. And the king says, bind him hand and foot and cast him out. Now, some see this as a, a parable of judgment. But uh, how about a parable of grace? Don't you see the good news? How about this, this one guy gets bounced because he refuses to graciously accept what is freely given but all these other people who, could, who couldn't even dream of being at such a banquet are there. And, and that's why it's a parable uh, of grace. A primary line of argumentation for, for all of this uh, is that perfect righteousness, spotless beauty, perfect righteousness is necessary to be with God. As it said in Revelation, nothing unclean shall enter the kingdom of God. This is the way the kingdom of God. You have to be spotless to be in there. Uh, and you've, we've all heard people say, I know I might not be perfect. I might not be perfect, but... Well, the problem is there's no buts to it. If you aren't perfect, then you can't, you can't get in. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, that's what it takes. Uh, it's, it's not an opinion. It's, it's, that's just uh, what, where it is in God's kingdom. Nothing but beauty. There are only two kinds of righteousness in the Bible, and that is inherent righteousness and imputed righteousness. Inherent righteousness, obviously, is the righteousness that is me. It's a part of who I am. 
and the other righteousness is imputed righteousness. It, it, um, it, it, it's, uh, it's credited to me. It's not that I am righteous, but it, I'm assumed to be righteous. It's, theologians call it imputed righteousness. I'm not telling you a thing you don't know, uh, but this is important for, for us to, uh, uh, to, uh, to talk about this. And the more I read uh, the Old Testament, the more I'm convinced that they pointed to this just as clearly as the, as the New Testament authors did. Uh, the verses, uh, these verses from Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. In the days of Judah, uh, he shall be saved, and Israel then will dwell securely. And this is the name, then, by which the Lord will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Wasn't that our... Uh, yeah, if you were in church at 7 or, or come at 11, you see, that's our Old Testament passage that ends with, the Lord is our righteousness. In the 10th verse of the 61st chapter of Isaiah, it says, I will greatly rejoice. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So uh, the, the, uh, Isaiah says, he will clothe me with the garments of salvation, cover me with a robe uh, of of salvation of course it's not he says I will rejoice in that he's not rejoicing in the garment he's rejoicing in the one who gives him uh, this garment and it's a beautiful little scene in Zechariah also that that I think points to this in a very profound way listen to the word of the Lord here it says then I saw Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord this is a picture of judgment and Satan was there at his right hand to accuse him. Uh, isn't that interesting? Here's uh, uh, this, uh, Zechariah has his vision of Joshua, one of, the, one of the fathers of Israel's faith. He's standing there before the angel of the Lord, represents the judgment of God there, God himself, and says Satan is standing next to him to accuse him, to say, look, look at him. Here's what's wrong with him. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And can you just see the devil there pointing to say, look how dirty he is. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove those filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with rich apparel. And I said, and he said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by pleased. Isn't that, isn't that a neat little depiction there of, of, of judgment? Of course, it all started the Garden of Eden, right? You know, Adam and Eve, they, they, uh, they partake of the forbidden fruit, picking up at chapter 3, verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed lig, and they sewed figs, leaves together, and made themselves aprons. Then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you, Adam? And he said, Well, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And the Lord, here we are, verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. So already you can see, this, this, already there in the third chapter of Genesis, 
you can see that it's being pointed to that God has to close us to cover our, our shame. John Calvin puts it pretty vividly as he writes his commentary on this verse. He said, truly it was a sad and hard spectacle that he in whom recently the glory of the divine image was shining, speaking of Adam, that he in which the glory of the divine image was shining would lie now hidden under fetid skins to cover his own disgrace and that there should be more comeliness in a dead animal than in a living man. (laughs) That's Calvin's understanding of that. Well, so Calvin leaves us contemplating these dead animal skins as covering our disgrace. But can't you also see here that how the author is also pointing to a provision and pointing to a covering and also pointing that some animal had to die. Something had to die. There had to be a death in order for there to be a clothing, to be a covering. So you can already see this theme beginning to develop in the Old Testament. And it gets stronger and stronger as the prophets begin to point to this covering. And then along comes Jesus with these parables about the wedding banquets in this parable that we saw enacted in, uh, in the skit today. And again, I know this is Theology 101, but uh, imputed righteousness, that is righteousness is not my own, but righteousness is given to me. This is not just one doctrine among many. You know, they say, well, there's a lot of doctrines, but one of them is imputed righteousness. No, this is not just one among many. This is one we've got to get right if we're going to understand grace. And if, we, if we're going to get Christianity right, we've got to understand grace. If we understand grace right, we've got to get imputed righteousness right. Uh, Martin Luther as a direct quote, he was talking about imputed righteousness. We cannot emphatically and often enough sharpen our thinking on this doctrine. We must devote ourselves to it with the greatest theological diligence and seriousness. No article of faith is so threatened by the danger of false teaching. Now, the reformers picked up on that, and they, they fought the, and I'm not here to disparage the Roman Catholic doctrine, how much that lingers on today in good well, it, it, it lingers on today, this understanding of imputed righteousness over, over and against infused righteousness. Infused righteousness uh, is uh, that when you take the sacraments, uh, there is a kind of infused righteousness that we absorb it by eating the body and blood of Christ and that, uh, that the infused righteousness either gradually dissipates as the believer participates in worldly sin or is enhanced as the believer engages in good works. So the infused righteousness uh, goes up or down depending on how we live our lives. The reformist has absolutely rejected that with, with great uh, vehemence and, and, and emphasis. And, you know, think about it. Where, where would you be? Just, you know, bringing it back to you personally. Where would you be without this doctrine of imputed righteousness? I mean... I, I, if, if infused righteousness, if, if that was, you know, if, if my inherent righteousness had played a little bit of a role uh, in my relationship with God and my ability to enter the kingdom, then where, where would you be? It, it, you, how, how would you feel about where you are in your Christian journey? You know, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's a, a great verse in James, the New Testament James says, the prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effect. And when I read that, the first thing I think about is, whoa, the prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effect. I'm left out. 
I just, I just, it's like, I can't pray. I have, I can't do it. I mean, I, I just, I know you feel the same way, but there's no way in the world. I mean, sometimes I can act like a jerk, uh, and I often do, uh, and Jane points it out with great, with great, <laughs> speci- she's very specific about exactly where, where, where it is, and I understand, but. I, I sometimes, and, and I, but I go to the end of the day and I do most of my praying in the morning. And if I, and to get on my, I just don't feel worthy enough to pray. I, I do not feel like that I, that, that, that my prayers can ever reach the throne of grace. And it says, but it says the prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. Well, tell me about imputed righteousness then. Tell me about the fact that is he's not talking about infused righteousness here. He's talking about imputed righteousness. And so that, that, that opens the door for a guy like me to fall anytime on your knees and pray. Uh, there's great hope there. But I hope you can see how the whole doctrine of grace, it, it, it falls or stands on, on this doctrine. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. And when the son finally comes home and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be your son. And the father said, what? The first thing he says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. So, you know, the, the Luther and all the English reformers, they, 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 uh, they, this this was one of the great foundations on which on which they stood, and that's one. I'm going to get a little heavy here now, and get a little theological here about this because you, you can take this at different levels. You can go a little deeper theologically. Uh, we could say that there are uh, uh, there's a positive imputation and there's a negative imputation. A positive imputation is when the believer see, receives the righteousness of Christ. That's the positive uh, imputation. The negative imputation is when my sin that's on my and my judgment that is due me is imputed over to Jesus. So my sin goes to Jesus and he takes it to the cross uh, and uh, his righteousness is imputed to me. So could we say then that there are two negative, negative, two aspects of negative imputation? First, that Adam's sin is imputed to us. That's negative. And then our sins, Adam's sin is imputed to us. And then uh, our sins is imputed to Jesus. Both of those are negative imputations, as you can see. But we have to we have to be very careful there because imputation has nothing to do with what is inherent. When our sins was imputed over to Jesus, he did not become inherently sinful. And when Jesus' righteousness is imputed over to us, we did not become inherently righteous. But when Adam's sin is imputed to us, we did become inherently sinful. You see the difference? Does that make sense? When Adam's sin was imputed to us, we became inherently sinful, unlike Jesus when our sin was imputed to Jesus, he did not become inherently sinful. But we became kind of a psychogenetically uh, transmitted guilt that we get from Adam, uh, and, and, and it becomes inherent.
because we all have the disease, inherently we have the disease, as I love to say, we're all OS positive. So that, that's, a, that's a, you know, you could write a whole essay on what I just talked about, the positive and negative aspects of, of imputation. Uh, but imputation in and of itself does not declare what is inherent. It did from what we got from Adam, but it doesn't from what we give to Jesus. Uh, Jesus does not become inherently sinful, and we do not become inherently righteous uh, as Jesus imputes his righteousness to us. The only thing that became inherent in the imputation uh, equation was the sin that, that, that Adam imputed over to us, and that became inherent. It's a little heavy, but that's okay. It's called original sin, and that's where we picked it up. I'm convinced that we human beings spend an inordinate amount of time trying to to uh, prove our righteousness, to prove our justification, to uh, to prove our acceptability. That's all. It's all this means, uh, and it usually starts when when we when we're teenagers. I think even maybe even before this kind of drive to be good enough, a drive to be pretty enough, drive to be smart enough, drive to be successful enough. This is inherent drive to to you name it. And life can just be kind of a treadmill of trying to justify ourselves and make ourselves righteous or acceptable uh, to enter the banquet, uh, but also before others and our peers and the guy above us. But all of this is just a subset. It's just a subset of our need to be righteous before God. And God does not want us to live that way. He wants us to know that, to quote Jeremiah way back in the beginning of our story of salvation. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, what a great verse is that. The Lord is our righteousness. And once that becomes a reality in our hearts, uh, then we can find strength and peace that passes human understanding. I want to close with something I've read to you before. I want to read it again because I like it. Uh, And it's an illustration out of the life of that great 19th century Englishman, uh, Charles Spurgeon, that that I read just about every day. But uh, one day a colleague of Spurgeon's, a man named Mr. Weaver, does this ring a bell to any of you? A man named Mr. Weaver, he was talking about his buddy Weaver. Uh, Mr. Weaver met with an unfortunate man who was uh, uh, probably a street person. He was very poor. And Mr. Weaver, he was, Mr. Weaver was a kind man, he was a generous man, and he wanted to befriend uh, the, the poorly dressed beggar. And he told him that if he would come to his home, uh, that he would fix him up. He was going to fix him up in... Uh, Uh, in a suit of clothes. So let me just quote this. So, Mr. Weaver said, I went upstairs and took off my second best and put on my Sunday best, for I didn't want to give him my best. It's kind of funny. And I sent the beggar upstairs and told him that he would find a suit which he could put on. It was my second best. So after he had put on the clothes, he left his rags behind and came down and said, Well, Mr. Weaver, what do you think of me? Well, Mr. Weaver said, I think you look very respectable. Oh, yes, but Mr. Weaver, it is not me. I am not respectable. It is your clothes that are respectable. Ah, so, added Mr. Weaver, so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. He meets us covered with the rags of filth and sin, and he tells us, go and put on not his second best, but the best robe of his perfect righteousness. And when we come down with that on, We say, Lord, what dost thou think of me? And the Lord says, Why, thou art all fair, my friend. There is not a spot in thee. And we answer, But, O Lord, it is not me. It is thy righteousness. I am comely because thou art comely. 
I am beautiful because thou art beautiful. I just love that. And that's just, uh, that kind of sums up imputed righteousness right there in a nutshell. So uh, that's all I, I need to say this morning. Uh, I'll be glad to talk about it a little bit, if you would like. I guess the first thing I want to know is, is uh, do you see the, the, how crucial this doctrine is over and against infused righteousness? Yeah, okay. Questions, comments, objections? I would have liked to have seen you cast in Joe Gibbs' place so I could see you in that sparkled sport jacket. You know, I tell you, it's interesting. By the way, Deborah Layton, Deborah Layton has had, most of you know, she's had four years of acting experience in New York where she, uh, uh, after she finished undergraduate school, she'd always wanted to be a, an actress, a live theater somewhere in New York. Uh, and she spent four years there in that in the in the theater industry, uh, and so Carolyn Langford had asked for a reprieve this year. You know, Carolyn Langford's done these skits for years and years, and just done a wonderful job. So uh, naturally, I said, "You know, all right, Deborah, you you're the heir here. I mean, you take, <laughs> you, take your experience." And uh, and she said, well, "I love directing, and I love I love stage. You know, like working out stage." Well, I said, "Well, take it, and run with it." So she took it. And she called in uh, James Bradford, who is one of our consultants for things like this, of course, and he can add a witty line here or there. You know, James, you're not surprised by that. So Carolyn and James, you know, they, they work with her. But, but Deborah Layton wrote that skit, and she uh, and also directed it. I mean, we don't, listen, we practice one time. That, that we practice one morning. We're from 9 to uh, 11.30, one morning is all we get. So it's always, it's always you know, like, ooh, <laughs> I hope this goes over. <laughs> So, uh, and, there's, and there's so much involved in that little skit. I mean, the sound and thing. There's a lot of people to come, to come together to get that to make, to make that thing work. But she came to me and she said, I want you to play a little part. You don't have many lines. I said, oh, as long as I don't have many lines, I'll do it. Otherwise, I'd love to be the narrator because, you know, you got to, you to read. So, but she said, no, I want you to be in it this time. And she told me, you know, what part she wanted me to, to play in. Well, I said, I would rather be the guy who gets booted. I said, because I can identify there, you know. I, I want to be the guy who gets booted out. She said, no, 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 no. I got you. I want you to be the father. And I said, I don't know if I can live up to that because, you know, he represents the Lord. He represents he represents the king. So, uh, I, I, But she, she insisted, so, so we did it. There you go. I would have rather have been. Well, I'm saying that's a long answer to that comment. I would have rather have been Joe. I actually asked to be Joe. <laughs> But they needed an older guy, too. That's another thing. They need a father. I said, I'm a grandfather, Brian. I'm a father, Brian. <laughs> and Lavonda, uh, Lavonda agreed to, to be my wife. And I said, well, she just, you know, she loved older men. <laughs> so, and I had some parts in the skit, too, but they, they kicked out. Like, at the end, when I said, uh, let me, you know, you know, I want you to remember that you'll always be my little girl and so forth. And also said, and by the way, I got some good news. I've worked out my schedule, so I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to go on a honeymoon with you. I'm going to be right there. I'm going to be right there next door to you. Going to be, you know, y'all doing okay in there? Yeah. No, no, that's not it. It won't work. So we didn't do that. But well, the Lord is our righteousness. Let us pray. Uh, Almighty God, you are all, always more ready to give than we are to receive. So open our hearts and clothe us in your righteousness uh, and envelop 
us uh, in your grace that that our hearts may be full of thanksgiving uh, uh, before your uh, amazing generosity which comes to us through the death and resurrection of your son Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. <clears throat>